All right, another great episode here on the Ortho Show podcast, and we're right in my sweet spot. We're talking to Alexander Saw, who was, again, one of the earliest adopters of an opioid-sparing approach when it came to orthopedics uh, back in about 2008, 2009. And so he's really built a remarkable practice. He's got this awesome destination center out in Fremont, uh, California, where, where people fly in from all over because of the way in which he does his outpatient surgery. Uh, he's an ear- earliest adopter for outpatient surgery as well. He was trained at the Harvard program, so he knew a lot of the same people. Uh, and just doing doing amazing work. He's got some real great ideas and some new concepts for opioid sparing surgery uh, in particular that he'll share with us as well. You're absolutely going to love this episode. Hashtag follow the fro. We want to thank our sponsor, Heron Therapeutics. Heron Therapeutics invites you to enter a new world of post-operative pain management with the first and only extended release dual-acting local anesthetic Zinrelief, Bupivacaine, and Meloxicam. Zinrelief has an important class-wide non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug box warning that includes a risk of serious cardiovascular and gastrointestinal events and is contraindicated in coronary artery bypass graft surgery. Avoid use in highly vascular surgery in patients with severe heart failure. See warnings about patient monitoring, risk of fetal toxicity, limits use after 20 weeks gestation, and avoiding use after 30. Please see show notes to access full prescribing information, including boxed warning. Visit www.zinrelief.com. That's www.zynrelef.com for more information. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. And yes, once again, there are no exceptions. We need to go out to sunny California today to one of my favorite other opioid-sparing superheroes, Dr. Alexander Saw, who's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in knee and hip replacement at a Saw Orthopedic Associates in Fremont, California. Alex, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you, brother? I'm great, Scott. Thanks so much for having me fan of the uh, show. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, this is what we love to do, bring on really cool, unique people. And I think we uh, have a lot of shared history, actually, you know, based on our passion for opioid sparing surgery, but also some time being spent in Boston as well. But let's just start off. We always like to sort of get an idea as to how and why. Now, we know you went east for college and medical school, but did you grow up in California? I did. I grew up in California in Fremont, which is just south of San Francisco, uh, east of uh, Palo Alto. But then I went out east, as you mentioned, for college, med school, and orthopedic training. When did you decide orthopedics? Was that early on in life? Or do you have doctors in the family? Or was that something later on? I do have a number of doctors in the family. My grandfather was an anesthesiologist. Uh, uncle was a plastic surgeon. Another uncle was a internist. And my father was an ear, nose, and throat uh, surgeon. So I knew I wanted to go into medicine. I did not really like working on people's noses and ears. So I decided to do something else like orthopedics. 
Yeah, you're way too cool to be an ENT guy for sure, no question about that. But uh, so, so you're so you're out in Philadelphia, which couldn't be you know any further from from uh, your life in Fremont, California, and uh, the rough and tumble uh, for sure. And uh, so you you go to Haverford, and then you go to Jefferson, and you had to have spent some time with some mentors at the Rothman, I would imagine, in your in your pivotal years of medical school. So we love shout outs here on the Ortho Show. So tell us some of the people that really helped you to decide what your path was going to be. Yeah, there are a number. Dr. Rothman obviously was uh, a major influence, uh, what he has built, the team he created there with that Orthopedic Institute. So really eye-opening. And then Alex Vaccaro, different specialty, but spine surgeon, but just his energy and passion for the field uh, really did influence me. I did some research with him early on, and it just uh, proved to me that that's really a path that I wanted to take as well. Well, you obviously did pretty good and your parents were happy because you got accepted to the Harvard Orthopedic Program for residency, which uh, obviously is not very easy to get into. It is a rigorous program with some always giants of, of the field that are there. So you're spending some time, you know, in Harvard at the Harvard Orthopedic Program, which we know well here. Obviously, I'm, I'm 30 miles north of the city, spent a little bit of time at Mass General. But, you know, was Harry Rubash the chairman at the time when you were there or no? That's that's exactly right. Harry Rubash was the chair of MGH. Tom Thornhill was the chair of Brigman Women's, and um, we had a we had a great group because in that program you you rotate through the hospitals of Children's Orthopedic Hospital as well as Beth Israel and MGH and Brigham, and so a, a wide variety of experiences. Yeah, no, the Harvard program in particular has every subspecialty in orthopedics covered, you know, inside and out for sure. And, uh, you know, so so tell us, you know, so I had the opportunity, you know, I'm probably, uh, how old are you? 47. Yeah, so exactly 10 years older. So, you know, Tom Thornhill and Dick Scott were at the Baptist. So, you know, I'm sitting there doing these, you know, amazing total knees and, and hips with these amazing guys during residency, which was awesome. And then uh, you must have spent some time with Denny Burke, too, at Mass General. Was he around at the time? Absolutely. So Dennis Burke was certainly one of the major influencers for my class and the residents above and below my year, just in terms of uh, how he approached medicine, surgery. He's so meticulous, so good with patients and just great with people as well. So he definitely was a major influence for all of us going into joint replacement. Yeah, for, for a young guy in practice, whenever I had any trouble back up north, you know, 30 miles north of the city, we could always pick up the phone and call Danny, and the answer was always yes. So what, what a mensch is the term I like to use, just, a, just an amazing man who, who did so much for so many as far as training is concerned and has taken care of so many amazing patients here locally as well. Um, so, you know, was, was, Henry, what was, was Henry Mankin gone at that point? Was the Mankin breakfast no longer? Thankfully, I did not have to do any of the Mankin breakfasts. They're definitely legendary and heard a lot about them. So I just missed out on those. He was still around and he would still teach and he'd still be present for meetings and such. But I I was not subject to uh, the the Mankin breakfast. Yeah, well, I fortunately, unfortunately was. And so had a few moments (laughs) where I got called out. But he was was always soft on the Tufts residents. You know, we rotated over there. So, you know, we were, he wasn't quite as uh, rigorous to us, but we've had so many guests on that have talked about their experiences. And Kevin Plancher (laughs) would talk about his experience too. It was a, it was a scary, it was a scary hour of your life. That's for sure. Hunkered down to the back if you could. Um, And then, so so then you go up to Rush. All right, so you decide it's going to be Arthroplast right at that point you're hooked uh and you head out to chicago and you do the rush minimally invasive hip and knee surgery fellowship and tell us about that experience and the mentors you have there because we love those shout outs 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think it really complemented my residency experience very well, because as you mentioned, uh, Dick Scott and Tom Thornhill, great mentors and taught me a lot with arthroplasty and Dennis Burke and Harry Rubash, Andrew Freiberg from the MGH. So really a great um, foundation in residency and then the ability to go to rush many of them uh, colleagues and peers of, of the surgeons we just mentioned. So to do that fellowship rush where you had people like Aaron Rosenberg and Rich Berger and Craig Delavalle and Scott Spore um, and Wayne Proposky and then Dr. Galante would come back for meetings as well just to learn from those minds who really have pioneered so much in the arthroplasty world uh, was certainly a privilege. Yeah, no, isn't it amazing, you know, the things that we learn from the people that they've learned from the people they've learned and it gets passed down and you know, evidence-based medicine is so important in what we do, but experience-based medicine is also just as important, right? I mean, you know, the, the foundation of your decision-making, you know, intraoperatively, whether you're doing minimally invasive now or we're, you're making a real incision, you're taught how to be a great surgeon, not how to do an operation. Well, there's no question. And just as one large example, if you look back in 2007, eight, when I was a fellow there and Rich Berger was sending people home same day of surgery. And as you remember, Scott, people were, you know, uh, criticizing him off the stage and saying he was uh, ridiculous doing that. Now you fast forward to today and every joint surgeon is sending their patients home same day. So it's remarkable how things can change. And they're just some pioneers who see things ahead of their time. You know, it's funny. I mean, I don't want to call anybody out here up in Massachusetts, but in your home breeding ground for your orthopedic residency, there's a lot of inpatient surgery going on for joint replacements. The message of the ASC is not really cracked down into Boston as much as it has in some of the outside communities, but that's all good. You know, one of my favorite sayings, there's a lot of medical information that gets out of Boston, not a lot that gets in, uh, but uh, we're, we're starting to see a change in the wave. So look, one of the things that you and I share, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, is, is the minimization of opioids in the perioperative period, right? And so let, let's ask a first question for you. So when you're in your, in your residency working with Rubash, Berg, Thornhill, Scott, I mean, this, and no, this is not an offense. We're not pointing anybody out. We're not getting mad at anybody. Just the history so people understand. I mean, how many pills were you writing for an opioid prescription for somebody going you know, after their, their, their total knee replacement, for example, in residency? Oh, it would be anywhere from 75 to 100 because we knew that they were going to be in pain. And honestly, those were the only tools we had. So at the time, you use what you're familiar with. And back then, as you well know, patients wanted to have a zero out of 10 on the pain scale. And the nurses and physicians were graded on that, on how well their pain was controlled. So you use what you have available. And opioids were all that we had. And, and then OxyContin came out, as you know. And we started to use that because that was giving delayed release and prolonged relief. And and we didn't really know what, what was happening as patients were taking these narcotics and relying on them. But, you know, you use at the time what you have available. So unfortunately, that's that's all we had. Yeah. And it wasn't like we were being malicious. You know, it was just that's what we were taught. Talk about experience based medicine. Right. Your chief resident told you make sure you give enough pills because you know, it's Friday and we don't want anybody getting called over the weekend. And, you know, when I was when I was at the New England Baptist in 1995, you know, we'd admit patients to, to the hospital side for three days. And the reason they needed to stay three days is that we were, we were narcotizing them with all these medications. They couldn't get out of bed. They were having pain. They'd have nausea. They'd, you know, they couldn't pee. All of it that goes along with those opioid-related adverse events. And then they'd go to the rehab for like a week or 10 days. So literally... You know, think about it right now. Nowadays, 
we, we look at these people smiling, walking out of the surgery center same day who are pain-free compared to what we were doing 20, you know, 25 years ago. It's really quite remarkable. It is an unbelievable change. And when patients come in, it's, it's amazing to see them, as they mentioned, that this is not their mother's total joint replacement. This is not their aunt's total joint replacement. Things have changed so much, as you said. It truly is remarkable to see what patients can achieve after elected joint replacement. So when was the transition for you? Obviously, you get trained in Boston, then you go to Rush and you're doing your fellowship. It probably wasn't too much different then, you know, as well in 2008. You know, the real crisis when it got really bad was like in the early 2010s, like 2010 to 2014. It went just bizarro, berserko as far as how many people were inadvertently getting addicted to opioids in the, in the perioperative window. So when did you, when did the light go on for you that something new and different had to be done? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that when I was in fellowship in 2008, working with that group, I think that's where we learned a lot of the minimally invasive techniques. And as you know, Scott, a lot of people thought that the less invasive surgery was leading to the quick recovery. But I think what we learned was equally as important, if not even more so, was just how we manage pain. And so having a better idea of using things like anti-inflammatories around the clock and, and acetaminophen to its maximal doses, those kind of things began to evolve from, from those experiences, from the minimally invasive uh, wave of, of uh, interest in surgery. But then I'd say that, as you mentioned, probably 2010, somewhere around there, when liposomal bupivacaine came out, just it changed people's thought processes of using something more local rather than systemic, using something more long-lasting than something just a few hours uh, lasting, it, it really changed our mindset and what we could and could not do. And, and it really, in my practice, started us to look away from narcotics if we could. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly, right? I mean, what did we have in, in the early 2000s? We had opioids. I mean, there wasn't an opioid alternative that's being manufactured by pharmaceutical companies. We just, that was it. And what we did hurt. And we were told, you know, you got to make sure your patients are out of pain. You got the the HCAP scores that are going out, right? And so you give narcotics because they're cheap and they're not very addictive. <laughs> it could be more opposite, right? How expensive they are to society, much less the loss of life, as well as how powerfully addictive they are. So, all right. So, so you head out, you, give, you head back home, you, you decide, all right, I've gotten all my amazing training across the country. And Californians, they love those Harvard doctors, man. I'll tell you, they <laughs> love those guys when they come back home. So you join the, the Washington Hospital Healthcare System, if I get that correct. Uh, that was back in 2008. Uh, and then you started working with them. And, and then you really sort of pushed towards the ASC thing, which we'll talk about in a second. But I'm also really curious about what happened in 2017 when you decided to really put your name on the door uh, and open the SOT Orthopedic Associate. Now, you, you have another partner as well, but was the thought process to make this a destination center? Was it, you know, was it to take all of that? I mean, just I'm really curious how you went from this larger group process down to a much smaller practice as far as your, your partners. Sure. So what I should have mentioned is, as you alluded to, I was born and raised in Fremont, and then I returned in 2008 out of fellowship to the hospital where I grew up in. So that's the same hospital my dad practiced for 40 years as an ENT. That's the hospital. I think I'm the only surgeon who was born in that hospital and came back to practice there. So that's really home for me, that community I know well. So I practiced there. And then you're right, in 2017, decided to open up my own uh, corporation, uh, you know, solo practice, brought on a new associate this year, which we're very excited about. But it was really, uh, to, you know, I'm very thankful for the hospital for supporting us. In 2008, we we're a very busy joint replacement program. 
doing some of the highest volume in the Bay Area, even though we're a small community hospital. Uh, 2012, they built us a unique three-floor building uh, just for joint replacement, 30 private rooms, and the nurses and staff, that's all they do is take care of our joint replacement patients. So to fast forward to 2017, it was really the concept of providing um, unique uh, joint replacement, state-of-the-art joint replacement, but also doing it in a personalized way. So we, we created a staff. Uh, we hired the personnel so that we could treat each patient as, a, as an individual. And so because of that, we, in our known personalized approach, we've had patients traveling from, you know, hours away in California, Southern California, Napa, but now out of state. So from Hawaii, Texas, New York, people will fly to us as a destination site. And I think it just proves that even in today's day and age, if you, if you create a, a location, provide a service that, that people can't get elsewhere, they are willing to travel for, for good medical care. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this on the Ortho Show all the time. It's also part of your, your brand, right? I mean, it's become your professional brand as to who you are. You're one of these go-to guys now for, for people to come because you everybody knows that we are going to have a minimally invasive approach to your surgical intervention in an opioid-sparing fashion, and you're going to be up and moving as quickly as possible. And so people are attracted to that. And, and so that every patient that, you know, you've reached that, that wonderful spot where every time you walk into a room, the patient that is sitting there wants to be seen by Dr. Saw. I mean, that's half the battle, right? I mean, now you can go in and talk about the healing process, the personalization of it, but you know that these people are drawn to you and want to be because of the brand in which you've established. So we hear that a lot on the show. It's, it's definitely a privilege. And, you know, even as surgeons, we, it's very hard nowadays to make those personal connections with patients. We have electronic medical records. We have so much we have to do behind the scenes and the surgeons, we're known to not spend as much time with our patients, but, but like you, Scott, I try to practice medicine the old fashioned way, the way my, my dad did as an ENT when he would have a black bag and do uh, home visits. I mean, he knew every patient, patients knew him. Well, we try to have that same personalized approach with our patients. That's awesome. And we're really happy that we can share that with, with our listeners. And so let's talk about a couple more things as we, we sort of get going here. Why do you think there is such a proliferation of the movement to ambulatory surgery centers for the work in which we do? It's almost every day now, this other complex surgery, which everyone said had to be done in the hospital setting is getting moved to the ASC. So talk about, is it safe? Is it cost-effective? How are you managing patients' pain? How are you managing their expectations? I think all those things are super important. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and this really started at least I began this uh, project, this movement towards outpatient joint replacement back in 2014. So it was the first one in our area to do that. Started doing some same-state discharges from the hospital first, but then from our ASC as well. And in, the, in developing that program, you realize that this is something that patients want. Patients don't want to stay in the hospital anymore. As you mentioned earlier, when we were in training, patients were routinely in the hospital three or four days after surgery. They didn't want to go home. They'd go to rehabs. They'd be on walkers for six weeks things have changed dramatically where people want to sleep in their own bed. They don't want to be in a hospital, no matter how nice it is. They'd rather recover with their family. And, and when they're motivated to do so, when they're in less pain, having fewer side effects, fewer reactions to those opioids, it's definitely much more achievable. And so you find that as you either discharge them the same day from the hospital first uh, to be safe, but then you do it from an ASC, there are opportunities to make these surgeries, uh, you know, fast recovery for patients, fewer adverse events, it's much more comfortable. It's a more pleasant overall experience and, and patient satisfaction goes skyrocketing. So that movement really started taking off in the, in the mid 2010s. And then with COVID 
the pandemic. Uh, we didn't really know what was going to happen, but that actually accelerated the migration to the ASC even more so, simply because in 2019, if you wanted a joint replacement, you probably couldn't stay overnight in your local hospital because they were unable to have inpatients just because of the influx of COVID patients. So over the past two and a half years with, with the pandemic, more and more patients are willing and accepting, more and more surgeons and staff are accepting of having patients go home same day after joint replacement. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right? I mean, uh, hospitals, we should put sick people in the hospital, right? These, these are people that you know, have significant illnesses or they have multi-team surgical interventions or medical you know, teams that need to be taking care of patients. Why wouldn't you take a healthy person that's having surgery and put them in a place where the sick people aren't? You know, that concept w- was new to us. And uh, it's certainly grown. And uh, I find in my uh, personal practice that uh, patients are so appreciative now of being able to go home in a faster recovery, just like yourself talking about as far as minimizing their pain. We can control your pain. We're not sending you home with a pencil to chew on until it's okay three days later. You're literally going to be able to walk around uh, and feel quite comfortable. So, you know, one of the other things that uh, you've done successfully in private practice, which is, you know, really unusual, uh, is, is, you know, your ability to continue with research. And I know that your, your hospital system has, you know, a research foundation, but I'd like to talk about specifically one of the newer medications that you've been using in clinical practice, Tell us, tell the listeners, you know, what was really unique about, about Zim Relief as a local anesthetic. Sure. Just to backtrack a little, Scott, you brought up being involved in research and, uh, you know, giving talks and doing things with, with our, our colleagues. And I think you do the same. And I think even if we're in private practice, I think it's important for us to stay relevant, to stay uh, up to date with our peers. And that's really, honestly, how I first learned about liposomal bupivacaine back in the 2010s, right? If I was in private practice in a bubble, I may or may not have learned about it, but interacting with my colleagues at a meeting, hearing about it, I was able to get introduced to it earlier than when it was released really to the public. And same with Zen Relief, by maintaining those relationships and, and giving research and being more cutting edge, you, you got to stay involved. Even if you're in private practice, I think it's very important to, to do so because it, it helps us, but it helps us help our patients. And so Zen Relief was similar. Zen Relief was something that I've heard about for quite some time. And, and as you're well aware, it took a while for it to get to the market because the FDA process of clearance is so tedious now. But it did become available in about September of last year. And essentially what it is, is it's bupivacaine, so a long-lasting numbing agent that, that we're all familiar with when you go to the dentist or have any other local procedure. But it's also mixed with a anti-inflammatory, so meloxicam, which is Mobic in the oral form, and many, many people are familiar with that. But by combining the two, uh, Heron's been able to create a, a medication that you can apply at the surgical site, and it's a, it's a topical. So you apply it. You don't have to inject anything. You actually apply it to the surface areas. And what their studies have shown is that it can provide up to 72 hours of pain relief with its novel dual-acting synergistic mechanism. Yeah. So for our listeners, you know, if you think about local anesthetics, usually there's like a needle and a syringe and it has to be injected into the site to be able to do that. This is more of a gel uh, and it goes in and it sort of spreads out as a topical. So you sort of put it into the areas in which those nerve fibers have been injured at the time of the surgery and you can create the long acting pain relief. So that's typically how it's used in surgery. So, you know, what, what impact do you think that Zen Relief will have on post-operative management, you know, moving forwards? it's going to have a significant impact. I think that this really highlights some of the problems we were addressing earlier with opioids or medications or other things that work systemically. 
because while that does relieve pain in a systemic fashion, unfortunately, the whole body is exposed to that medication. That's why we get the side effects with the opioids and other medications we're delivering. So with this product, we're talking about specifically a local application. So it's really done at the surgical site only. So all of its benefit and effects are really localized to that hip joint or to that knee joint. So you spare the patient of any potential side effects. And again, this doesn't have any opioids, so it's not related to any opioid-related adverse event. The only way it's really related is that the states have shown is that it can reduce opioid-related adverse events. So patients have fewer needs for opioids after total joint replacement when this product's used. They have fewer refills of prescriptions. There are a greater percentage of opioid-free patients even after these major hip and knee replacement surgeries. So the impact for patients, since I've used it anecdotally, when I was using it early, I saw that patients were quite comfortable. I didn't tell any of my staff I was using it. I didn't want to bias anybody. And when I would see patients after surgery, I was quite pleased to see how comfortable they were after these major surgeries and then continued to use it and followed our first 115 patients and found that even compared to our already successful pain management protocols prior to using Zen Relief, with Zen Relief, we saw still improvements in pain relief, fewer opioids used, fewer refills of narcotics, and it seemed to have a, a good impact on our elective joint replacement practice. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, when I talk to my patients about surgery, I always talk about like, you know, the storm of pain, which is like that first 72 hours, right? You know, if you if you drive a nail through somebody's hand, it hurts like hell the very moment it happened, right? Uh, but literally, if you wait three days, uh, all of those that the chemicals that were released at the time of the surgery, which which ping your nerves, which basically go to your brain to say you're having pain, sort of get washed out of the system. So if you can give like a soft landing to these patients, even at three days or, or 72 hours when the medication wears off, it's not nearly as painful as it was when they would have, you know, first rolled out of the operating room. So I think that that's really, you know, great sound advice and a great application for, for medication to the perioperative window to reduce opioids. So you know, before we go, just just give us, you know, I think it's important for the for the for the listeners to be able to understand. And, and can you give us, you know, the results that were found in that trial and uh, how they're you know being applied moving forwards? Yeah. So what they found was that that uh, this product did relieve uh, pain very consistently. It did reduce opioid use. It uh, it met the goals that it was really achieving. And so they looked at it in multiple different scenarios. So they did total knee replacement as a study. They did bunionectomy as a bone type model, and they did hernia repair as a soft tissue model. So with that FDA approval, uh, it was it was put in use, but then because of its benefit, the FDA then expanded its use. So now it's available for total hip replacement and lower extremity uh, joint replacement procedures and applications are in for expansion of its use even more so. So thus far, the reception and the results have been uh, quite good. Yeah. So, so at the end of the day, it sounds like Zen Relief for you is another really important arrow in your quiver for an opioid minimization approach in the post-op management. I think we all like to stress that it's part of a large process, right? It's not just one medication. It's all of the, the team approach that everybody uh, from beginning to end is messaging the same process as far as minimizing opioids. And then uh, there's a number of uh, medications and a multimodal approach, which means we use a lot of different things that, that all come together. But certainly Zen Relief has, uh, uh, has, has been quite successful for, for you, and we really appreciate you sharing it. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I really applaud what your efforts have been as well and minimizing opioids in, in orthopedics. And thanks for letting us share this with your listeners. Yeah, no, this is what we love about the Ortho Show. You know, we bring on really remarkable people. We're, uh, I could not be more proud of 
the hard work that you've put in is really one of the earliest adopters of this approach of really opioid minimization and surgery. So couldn't, couldn't be happier that we were able to share your story. Thank this you so th- much, Scott. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.